my mom and I would always say, you know, we didn't live, we survived. It wasn't until I got older that I knew what it was like to live. We survived. And when we were surviving, we were doing it together. There were times where the electricity was off and you know, we survived together. When there was no food, we survived together. So I truly mean that. I've never understood why people see women inferior. And I damn sure never want my daughters to feel that way. I want them to know that they can do whatever they want to do. They can be whatever they want to be. And they don't have to come second to anyone. Even in our household, I'll share this last piece with you, Lori. I loathe the term behind every great man is an even better woman. When I got married, last time I checked, my wife stood side by side with me. She was never behind me. So I hate the term behind. My wife's been here through this whole thing. She accepted me and all the fractured, chaotic background that came with me. But I didn't get married with her standing three steps behind me. She's been by my side the whole time. So I will never use that dumbass phrase. everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. Today's guest is Javon J.T. McCormick. He is the CEO of Scribe Media. Scribe Media publishes books for famous people like Tiffany Haddish and David Goggins and all kinds of other people. But more importantly, Javon is someone who's got a really interesting backstory. And in this conversation, we talk about work, power, politics, money, the coronavirus, Black Lives Matter, and what it means to be a leader in uncertain times. Javon also wrote an op-ed piece that appeared on CNN.com and went viral about remote working. And I think it's a part of our conversation you're really going to enjoy. So if you like common sense yet counterintuitive takes on the world of business, well, sit tight and I'll be right back with Javon J.T. McCormick and more of Punk Rock HR. Hey, J.T., welcome to the podcast. Lori, how are you, ma'am? Oh, I'm fantastic. Thanks for being a guest today. I know you're incredibly busy. And before we get talking about the world of work and the world of just commerce and how things are going, why don't you just tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do for a living? Wow. I'll go with what I do for a living. And then if you want to, we can dive into to who I am. So I'm the president and CEO of Scribe Media. We help authors write, publish, and market their books. A couple of examples of bigger names, people that we have helped. Last year, we published the most sought after book in America, David Goggins Can't Hurt Me. He had, gosh, second only to Michelle Obama, that was the most sought after book in America. So that was a big win for us. But from a quality perspective, the big win that I am a fan of is that we did the book for the Nobel Peace Prize Committee. And so I always make the joke, if our quality is good enough for them, no one else has an excuse. (laughs) I think that's totally fair. And I love that you start with the fact that you are the CEO of a publishing empire, really, because you were joking just a few minutes ago that you don't know the difference between an adverb (laughs) and a pronoun and all that kind of good stuff. And I also know that you were CEO of a technology company and you don't write code. So how is it that Javon McCormick rises to the occasion and leads these important companies and yet it's not like you have any subject matter expertise. So what is it about you that got you where you are today? Wow, Lori, that's a loaded question. What got me to where I am today? Perseverance, work ethic, asking questions. I've built a career out of asking questions. I've never been afraid of no. No for me just means not right now. I'll come back and ask again. So 
The other piece that I've realized well in business, for me, doesn't matter what your product or service is. All companies need the back end of what I call the business of business. You all need KPIs. You all need operational metrics, balance sheets, income statements, sales, hiring, all those things go into business regardless of your product or service. I just happen to like those things. I like the back end of business and and making sure it's structured and consistent and repeatable and that can scale. Much of that, people have asked me, well, how did you, you fall in love with that? Maybe that was just my vein in life. That was my lane to success. Much of it I know comes from having a chaotic childhood. I grew up in complete chaos. You never knew what was going to happen from hour to hour. So I find business in many ways very therapeutic because you truly can set up the systems, the process, the consistency, know what levers to pull. And if done correctly, you can be immensely successful at it. So I attribute a lot of my success in business to uh, a chaotic childhood. God, that is so interesting. And you know, you're not the first leader that I've interviewed or met with or, you know, shared a bite to eat with who has talked about his or her early days being so influential on who they are today, like in a very visceral way. And you've got some pretty interesting early days. I, I don't know what word to use. So, <laughs> is, that, is that the word you're going to go with? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you tell your story. I mean, you, but you definitely have a story. And I think because you have a story, story is so important to you. So where do you want to get started with that? No pun intended. I'm an open book. You lead, I'll follow. Whatever question you have, I will answer. Well, I, I don't mean to be a therapist here, but tell me about <laughs> your parents. <laughs> wow. So my parents, my father was a black pimp and drug dealer in the 1970s. And as I've said countless times before, a pimp in the real sense, you know, somewhere along the line, our society took the word pimp and they twisted it into a positive. My father was a real pimp. He put women on a street corner. They sold their bodies. My dad took every dollar. And along the way, he also managed to father 23 children. So I'm one of 23. And my mother, my mother's a white woman, and she was raised in an orphanage, old school 1950s institutional jail-like orphanage. And when she turned 17 years old, they gave her $20, a small suitcase, and they said, good luck to you. There's the world. And she had never been outside of those four walls, did not know how to navigate the world. And unfortunately for my mother, one of the first people she met was my very well-dressed, quite a bit older, fast-talking father. And so those are my parents to this day. I don't know where my last name comes from. My mother was given the last name McCormick in the orphanage. And when I was born, when she went into labor, she had to walk herself to the hospital because my father was nowhere around. And so when I came into the world, I was all she had. So she said that she was going to give me her last name. And so we have this last name that we have no clue where it comes from. So many of us have chaotic origin stories, but that qualifies as one of the more chaotic ones that I've heard. And yet you've managed to create a life, but it's not as if you had this moment in your childhood where some sort of benefactor swooped in and gave you a college scholarship and turned it all around for you. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, you never went to university, correct? Never went to university. Matter of fact, here in the States, I never got a high school diploma. I got a GED, which is the equivalent of a high school diploma. So in fact, when I was 15 years old, I had to take the assessment test to find out where I was academically at 15. I tested on a fifth and sixth grade level. So not a lot of academic credentials going on (laughs) inside my head, but I managed to understand society, people, 
business. And that became my avenue, my path to success, if you will. Yeah, but JT, you also understand hard work. And I think your story signifies that because at a very early age, your first jobs were not interning and going to get coffee for powerful people. You were working, working. Tell us about those jobs. So my very first job was cleaning toilets at a restaurant. And that was my first introduction into hard work. And what was important about that is when I got my GED, I went home and I was excited, told my mom I got my GED. And she said, great, you got two weeks to go find a job. So I got a job out of necessity. And so my first job was cleaning toilets. But I remember standing in front of those toilets and saying to myself, okay, if this is my job, if this is what I have to do right now, I am going to do it to the best of my ability. These are going to be the cleanest toilets in the state of Texas. And what's important about that is I hear so many people with a negative attitude that they'll say, oh, well, they're not paying me enough for this. I'm not going to do that. And for me, I always believe that, okay, if someone's paying you, they're paying you to do a job, regardless of what that job is. And so I never looked at anything below me, beneath me, not my job, not being paid enough. Everything I've ever done, I want to be the absolute best at it. I, I want to be the best husband I can be, the best father, the best CEO. I want to be the best podcast guest I can be. So <laughs> my goal is to, if you're going to do something, be the best at it. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, as you start to get a little bit older and your career expands, one of the things I'm taken with in your career trajectory is that you're not only concerned about just the tasks, the skills, but you're people-oriented. And as you grow and start to take on leadership roles, you're really consumed with this idea of culture. So tell me a little bit about culture, what it means to you and what it means within your organizations. I'll tell you how that came about. I first got introduced to the word culture at the software company you spoke of. And I'll give you the brief story behind that. So when I started with that company, there was 13 of us. We were a small software company. I actually sat in a storage closet making my sales calls. So I started as the lowest paid person in the company. I sat in a storage closet, fold out metal chair, making my sales calls. And I got pretty good at my job and became the president of the company two and a half years later. But along the way, what happened was while I was selling and I was just the sales guy, I was toxic. I was horrible. I should have been fired 71 different times because I had a horrible attitude and I was not a culture fit and I was just a tax on the culture itself. And I had to learn along the way that it's people that make this whole thing go around. You're only as good as the great people you are surrounded by. So for me, it instantly turned into, wow, I've got to find great people. And a story hit me from when I was 21. I remember, and I'm paraphrasing, I read the book, Think and Grow Rich. And there's oh, wait, a story- Napoleon Hill, right? Yes, I don't mean it. Yes. yes. Yeah, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. I read that when I was young as well. That's a really influential book. Yeah, very influential. Two stories stood out to me. And I'll tell you the one that pertains to this as far as culture. I remember, again, paraphrasing, Henry Ford was on trial because he only had an eighth grade education. So I was immediately in love with the fact that he created what he did and only had an eighth grade education. But he was on trial because they said he was incompetent to run a company that size. And they were asking him question after question, the Spanish Inquisition, blah, blah, blah. And he didn't know the answers, obviously. And then he finally paused and he said, look, I assure you, 
for every question that I don't know the answer, I have people that work with me that know the answers. <laughs> and it hit me. I thought, oh, I don't have to know everything. I just got to surround myself with people who actually know it. <laughs> And that's become my three rules of leadership. Surround the company with people far smarter than myself. Rule number two, surround myself with people far smarter than myself. And then rule number three, repeat rules one and two. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And that, I think, is part of the reason why your companies have been best places to work, award winners, and you've won, if I'm not mistaken, awards from Entrepreneur Magazine. But one thing I'm really struck by is that you've got some really solid foundational ideas around culture. But in this world of digital communication and remote work, you recently published a piece that caught my <laughs> eye on CNN, and you said, our company will never go fully remote. So can we talk about that for a second? Tell us what you wrote and what you mean. So what I mean by that, and here's the backstory that, you know, a piece never gives the full story. But when I first joined the organization, 90% of our company was remote and only 10% of it was based here in Austin. And we were new to what we were doing. We were a startup. We were trying to disrupt traditional publishing. And I said to the two co-founders at the time, I said, look, we can't move fast enough with everyone remote. We need to be here centralized in Austin. So we made the effort to now we have 90% of the company based here in Austin, 10% is remote. And the deeper part of that is even with us being here in Austin, we're only in the office maybe max three days a week. I'm not counting, you know, how many hours have you worked? How many did you put in 50 hours? Did you put in 40? I don't care if you can drive results and accomplish your role two hours a week. Great. I'm probably going to come hang out with you to find out what you're doing so I can sign up for it. So the piece was written because I believe it's a dynamic combination of remote and in the office. Some of our best work comes when we're together, collaborative, having the culture, being able to speak to each other, being able to get up from your desk and just walk over to the other desk or the other conference room and having a, a conversation straight off of the cuff. And you don't get that with a Zoom meeting. And as you are probably aware, I called a lot of flack for that piece, <laughs> but I'll stand by this. If Lori is in the next room and I want to go have a quick conversation with Lori, I don't care what tool you have, Zoom, Slack, you know, Microsoft meetings, doesn't matter. Now I got to Slack you, see if you're available. Maybe you're on a call, maybe you're doing something else. And then we got to coordinate a meeting. By the time all that happens, I forgot what I wanted to go talk to you about. So I'm not saying that remote is bad. I'm saying it's a combination of remote and office space that should be the future because there's a lot of benefits that come with this. Not having to commute, being able to go and take care of your doctor's appointment whenever you want. We don't hold people hostage to a chair from eight to four. I don't care if you come in the office at 10 a.m. and you leave it at 9 p.m. Doesn't matter. Do what works best for you. But the key is we do have all of our Monday meetings in the office. Friday, we do what we call find a way lunch Friday. Friday and we break bread together, sit in that group, that collaborative spending time together. Those are huge parts of the culture. And maybe this will sound arrogant, but when Entrepreneur Magazine named us the number one company culture in America, for me, it spoke volumes about what we do, how we do it. We just won number two here in the state of Texas. And all of those awards are 
people driven, meaning people have to fill out an anonymous survey and tell their thoughts on the culture. So if the people are happy and they're rating us that high, then I like to believe that we're doing something right. Well, I don't hate any of that. And you know, as I read the article and as I listen to you now, I'm really reminded that binary thinking is so toxic in this world. And we had a binary way of thinking before the pandemic where everybody had to be in the office and had to do these long commutes. And now there's this thinking that everybody can work from home and people aren't in either or bucket. There are not two types of people in the world who either love to work in the office or don't. There are all different kinds of people. And, you know, my family and I are living proof. You know, I am a writer and a content creator. I like to work from home, but I need to get out on the road and be around people. My husband is a pharmaceutical executive. He actually doesn't enjoy working from home and likes to be in the office. So, I mean, people fall into all different kinds of buckets. And if you create a single employee experience, you're going to miss out on all the different ways that people like to contribute. So I like your hybridized way of creating an employee experience. I think it's smart. Totally. And I respect and understand. God knows I've been in business for 25 plus years. I get it. Not every company can create the dynamic workspace. But if you can, I could care less about micromanaging, keeping my thumb pressed down on people. Come and go as you please. I don't care if somebody's got a four-hour doctor's appointment or they go to their child's event during the day. Doesn't matter. Are we driving results? Are you getting your work done? That's all that matters. Are we serving you to the best of our ability as a company? And I say this to people all the time. My role as CEO is to serve and support. That's it. I am a mechanism that clears obstacles and serves and supports the people that I work with. No one works for me. Everyone works with me. I love it. As you were talking, I was also thinking about how to create that culture where people can come and go, do the work they need to do, trust that their leadership is on their side and clearing obstacles. And I keep coming back to this word, trust. And I also think about measurement. So how do you create this environment of trust? It must be hyper communication. You must be interacting with people all the time. And then how do you measure success? Tell us a little bit about that. So the trust aspect, in my opinion, starts from the hiring process. So here's something that I've never understood what companies do. When you're hired with most companies, you don't even know what they stand for. You don't know their culture, their principles, their values until you start with the company. It's almost like you're blindly interviewing to go work with this company. And then you don't find out their principles and values until you start. And sometimes maybe they're on the wall or they go over the principles and values with you on your first day of onboarding. So we're a little bit different. I said, wait a minute. Shouldn't it make sense that we make, we call it the culture Bible, our principles and values. We make them public facing. Anyone right now can go and look at our principles and values. And there's a whole story behind each one of them. And you can even add to the document if you want. It's external facing. So if you want to put, wow, this is great. I love this. Or, hey, you have a a spelling error over here. Or have you thought about this? Great. Here's the key to this. Many people will read that document and self-select out and say, I'd never want to be a part of that culture or tribe. Great. We appreciate it. You just saved us some time. We saved you some time. Other people are going to read it and say, wow, I found a home. I want to apply there. And we've done the numbers. It's percentage-wise, it's easier to get into an Ivy League school than it is to get into Scribe. We've had people apply with us eight times before getting hired. And the piece that we love about that is you know what we stand for and who we are before you join the company. So with that, you're building a trust 
before the person is ever even hired into the organization. Then when they are hired, they get to see, wow, they truly operate by their principles and values. They're here to support me. I was able to ask questions, one of our principles, and no one fired me. They want me to push back. They want my insight. So all of these pieces build trust. And here's what's very important. We're not just building trust from the executive team to the tribe members. We're building trust that they also trust the company and executive team. It's a two-way street. It's a relationship. It's whole self. And that's the collaborative approach versus the dictator approach that I see that's benefited us immensely. So someone gets hired into your organization and you've created this community where you can trust one another and there's open communication, open dialogue. How do you measure success though? Because so many organizations have a five-point scale and they assign someone a number based on what they've done. You're a 3.2, you're a 4.5, and that correlates to some sort of nameless, faceless compensation process. And nobody feels good about the contributions that they've made to the organization. So what's your approach on performance management and how do you let people know that they're doing good work? So Lori, I'm sure you've heard this phrase before. No one should ever be surprised that they're being let go or being fired, right? <laughs> yes. You've heard that, and right? Yet, okay. And yet they are. <laughs> so here's what's mind blowing to me. Have you ever heard someone say, no one should be surprised that they're doing a great job? No one says that. No. And so I equally believe that, yes, no one should be surprised that they're being let go, but no one should be surprised that they're doing a great job. So we don't do quarterly or annual reviews. That is horrible to to have a quarterly review. If I make a mistake in January and you don't tell me until the first week of April, how horrible is that? So we have what we call 30-day check-ins. People should know how they're performing early and often. Not just the bad, but also the positive. What are you doing great? Hey, continue doing that. Do more of that. Hey, can you teach this? Let's share that throughout the company. So for us, it's feedback and assessment early and often of what everyone's doing. Every 30 days, we have uh, sit downs with your direct support. Pause right there. This is very important. We don't have direct reports. If you are in a leadership role in our company, you are a direct support because your role is to support those individuals you are working with. They aren't direct reports. You are direct support in supporting them in their career, moving obstacles, helping them succeed in their career. I make a joke. If you want a career, come here. If you want a job, go there. So we're looking to create this culture of support. And in doing so, people will perform at amazing levels because they're happy with their work. It's quality work. They feel support. They know they can come in and ask questions, not just about work. And bear with me here. We have 50 plus people in our organization. Someone in our organization has probably seen it, done it, been there. So we want people to share what's going on. We all know in America, the debt that most people are carrying is insane. Most people are stressed. Most people are frustrated. So we had a gentleman come to us. He came to me specifically and he said, hey, JT, I'm embarrassed to share this with you, but I'm going to go for it. He goes, I'm $30,000 in debt and it's just weighing on my wife and I and my my daughter and we want to buy a house. We want to have another kid. And I said, okay, great. Let's sit down. We sat down. We built a plan. And in nine months, he was out of debt. Now think about that. How many companies can you go to an executive, to leadership, to a direct support, and they help you build a plan to get out of debt? We have people who may be going through a divorce, lost a, a loved one. All of those things, we're here to support people as much as they're willing to let us and take 
take care of the whole self, not just the work self. And then the last one I'll share, I read an article a few years back that said the average American doesn't even have $400 available in emergency cash in case something comes up. And it really bothered me because that's pretty much how I grew up with my mother. So immediately I put in place with the organization a $1,500 emergency fund. Doesn't matter who you are in the company. If you have an emergency, no questions asked. You have $1,500 available to you any given moment to take care of whatever emergency you need. Wow, that's amazing. And also something that really makes the difference for a top performer who's looking to make a decision about where to go work. Are you going to work for the company that doesn't care about you as the total complete individual? Or will you select your organization that offers something like this, an intangible benefit that just means the world in a moment of need? I love it. I wonder, JT, you know, there's a lot happening in the real world outside of work, right? (laughs) We have COVID-19, we have Black Lives Matter, we still have Me Too conversations that are happening. This is like such a big question, but is your company having conversations about what's happening in the real world? Are they awkward? Are they honest? I mean, what's going on in your work environment and how are employees feeling? So from the virus perspective, we'll go with that one first. We made the decision early to have everybody work remote. And we said, look, let's shut it down. Let's be ahead of this. We're not going to be dictated to by whatever the government decides or whatever local officials decide. Let's take care of our tribe and be ahead of this for a couple of reasons. One, wanted everyone to get situated because spring break was coming. A lot of our tribe members have kids and it was an adjustment to then all of a sudden you're at home for an indefinite amount of time. So we wanted people to have that time to adjust and get ready for it. So we made the decision long before everyone went with the whole shelter in place. And the beauty of this as well, I made the announcement early that we will not lay off one person in our organization. And so we never did any layoffs, not going to do any layoffs. And that gave people peace of mind, especially because some of our tribe members, their spouses, loved ones, partners, they were losing their jobs. And people were reassured constantly that, hey, you will not be laid off. We are going to make it through this together. We are going to succeed by any means necessary. So we never laid off anyone. And that was a real In my opinion, it was something that'll go down in history for me as a proud moment that we were able to accomplish that. And then we reopened the office on June 1st. We're here in Austin, Texas, and we had to close it back down three weeks later. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, right. But again, being ahead of the curve and doing what's best for the organization, that's always been top priority. How do we take care of people first? So that's what we did through the virus disruption. And then the protest happened and the murder of George Floyd on video. It was an interesting situation. Because for me, being half white, half black, so many people wanted my opinion, wanted my thoughts. And I'll share with you what I shared with our organization. I said, I'm frustrated. And people said, why? I said, because this is not new. I said, I'm frustrated because did it really take watching a man die on video for eight minutes and 46 seconds for us to say, 
oh, enough is enough. I go, this isn't new. I said, when I was a kid and I was five years old, then my mother and I came home to the public housing and the manager came storming out of the building because our stuff was sitting on the curb. And he told my mother, no nigger lovers can live here. I go, this isn't new. I said, when I was eight years old and the lady spit in my mother's face and called her a nigger lover because she had a mixed race son. I go, this isn't new. I said, the fact that I had to change my name from Javon to JT because you judged me before I even walked in the door by way of my email, my voicemail, my resume. But I knew if I changed it to JT, that there would be at least a fighting chance that I could just get in. Now, once I got in, if you wanted to judge the color of my skin and not my character and ability, okay, great. That's a different discussion. But I did not want my name, which is people look at as a stereotypical Black name, Javon. I did not want my name to keep me from succeeding. So again, this is not new. And then I hit people with a couple of the most recent. I've been married now for nine years, but shortly before I met my wife and we got married, I was dating a very prominent business owner here in Austin. And she was a white lady. And somehow, some way, the topic of race had never come up between us. And then one day it did. And I told her I was half white, half black. And two days went by, she calls me up and she says, hey, I'm madly in love with you. I was like, oh, okay. She goes, but we need to break up. And I go, what? And she says, yeah, my family would never accept you. And so this is recent. This is, you know, 10 years we're talking. And then 18 months ago, 18 months ago, I'm on an interview. I'm being interviewed to be one of the CEOs on the cover of a magazine. I'm on the cover with General Petraeus, the Heisman winner, Bo Jackson, the hedge fund billionaire, Leon Cooperman, and the CEO of Anheuser-Busch. And then I'm on there as well. But I was being interviewed for this. And the gentleman asked me, he said, hey, what does JT stand for? And I said, Javon Thomas. And he goes, oh, you got an athlete's name. And that was 18 months ago. So I shared with our tribe, I said, I'm frustrated because this is not new. And it frustrates me that this video took for people to rise up, protest, express anger, want change. And I said, and I'll give you a step further with my frustration. I'm frustrated because I don't know how legitimate it is. I'm frustrated that because 41 million Americans are unemployed right now. Is that why the protests are so big? Because we were stuck in the house for two and a half months because of the virus. Is that why the protests are so big? I go, because at the end of the day, if someone says to me, hey, that's really sad. What happened to that guy that died saying, I can't breathe? What's sad about that is I got to ask you which one. We're not just talking about the guy who just passed away, George Floyd. You could go back to Eric Gardner. So I was frustrated with the moment because this is not new. And what I would want to see more than anything going forward, and we continue to talk about this and actually do things internally to bring change, is it's got to be consistent. This can't just be another Ferguson where everyone's upset, everyone riots, everyone loots, everyone protests, and then three weeks later it dies down. Consistency is the key. If you're not consistent, it's just going to be a here today, gone tomorrow. Well, we have time for this because I am super curious because I feel as if our government and our institutions in a nonpartisan way have let us down for hundreds of years, right? What got us here is not going to get us there to social justice, to racial equality, to gender equality even, right? So I wonder what the role of corporations is in addressing some of these systemic problems that we have, because clearly, if we leave it up to government, we're going to get what we get, which is a half-hearted 
attempt and things never move forward. So what's your role as a CEO? What are you asking for from your employees, from other leaders? What's the role of business in fixing this? So personally, I believe if you go all the way back to the Constitution, oddly enough, it starts with we the people. And I believe that's what this has turned into. It's we the people. If you're going to wait for government to bring change, good luck with that. Keep waiting. (laughs) And so I believe corporations are the most powerful vehicle in our country to truly bring change. But even then, you have to look at some of the changes that need to be made of the Fortune 500 CEOs four black gentlemen. That's it. And so you have to look at that in itself. And I do believe the greatest changes that can be made are within business. I learned from the way I grew up poor on welfare, on the system. I learned that in money brings change and money brings voice. And so in business, that is the tool, the mechanism, the power to be able to bring that change and actually stand by some of the things that need to change in this country. But I'll stand by it. Even more powerful than business is consistency. If we are not consistent, people don't like my example when I say this, Every January, what happens? People are, okay, new year, new you. And the gyms are packed with people. The signing up, I'm going to lose this weight. And then two weeks later, the gym starts to thin out. People stop going. Maybe some people make it a month and a half. But by the end of February, gym is back to normal by way of only the people who've been consistent even before January. So for me, I use that example because it's a very basic and easy to understand example that if you're not consistent, you are not going to drive results. Well, let's fill the gyms with rioters and people who want change. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Lori, it's important too, because you, you hit on another part of this, the Me Too part of it. For me, and it really hits home, I was raised by a single mom. So I've got a completely different view of women than a lot of people. For me, my mom was a mom and dad. She was the strength in the the household. And I never saw a weak woman. I saw a woman who did everything she had to do for us to survive. So I've always had a different view of women. You know, now I have two daughters and I want them to be powerful women, speak their minds, speak up for themselves. And something I'm very proud of, 60% of our company are women and the four highest paid people in our company outside of me are women. It's terrific. That's really amazing. You know, as you were talking about people getting on the bandwagon and, you know, they embrace a movement and then jump off the bandwagon like six weeks later, I was thinking about Me Too. And I was thinking about some of the things that we've been through because it's not as if we're new to your point about racial injustice or gender inequality. These are issues we've known for years. And so, man, from your lips to God's ears, I hope we make change this time. We need it. We definitely need it. But Javon, I feel great that you're in a leadership position and you're talking about this within your organization and you're having those conversations. I think that's really progressive and really helpful. So thank you for doing that. For sure. Like I said, consistency is the key. And we too have to do a better job at opening the door for minority candidates to create an opportunity for themselves. And and I'm very specific, if you notice what I just said, creating an opportunity for themselves. I can open the door, but I'm never going to give anyone anything. No one gave me anything. Every opportunity that I received, I created. If you hired me, you hired me because you had a need. I could have easily have flamed out and you would have fired me. It was up to me to create that opportunity for myself. But what I do want to do is open the door so people can at least see 
what the opportunity is, then they can create it, apply for it, come in and make the most of that opportunity. Well, super well said. And I'm so glad you took this opportunity to come on the podcast. If people want to learn more about you, what's the best way to find out about your books, about your speaking, all the good stuff? Wow. I am very light on social media. Because you're healthy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't find, you know, I, it doesn't matter to me where you just went and checked in or what you're eating for, for lunch. Stop taking pictures of your food. I don't care. But I find LinkedIn for me to be the most quote unquote professional platform out there. So I post lessons learned from myself and mistakes I've made throughout my career on LinkedIn every Tuesday. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Javon JT McCormick. And then our company obviously is scribemedia.com. And so there you have it. Uh, That's perfect. Well, thanks again for being a guest today. We'll post all of that in the show notes. And I'm really glad to have heard your story today. Lori, I greatly appreciate it. And we will end how we started with manners. Thank you, (laughs) ma'am. You're welcome, my friend. Anytime. Take care. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Javon J.T. McCormick. I loved it, to be honest with you. I'm still kind of on a high after talking to him because he's just so interesting and gregarious. And I know you want all the links. So head on over to laurierudeman.com forward slash punkrockhr dash 117. As always, this episode of Punk Rock HR is produced by Danny Osmond and his team at Emerald City Production. I know you want a podcast. I know you are curious about it. So head on over to emeraldcitypro.com and take advantage of tons of free resources on Danny's website. Now that's all for today and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR. Punk Rock HR.